Good morning, everyone. You're very kind. Thank you. A longtime friend of your wonderful Pastor Lucas and Amy, and uh, glad to be able to stop by here. I've heard so much about this church over the years, and then when I saw the, the guy was connecting your hearts with their hearts, and it's just been fun to watch. I am obviously from the U.S. I'll try to speak an English that you understand. <laughs> bear with me. Bear with me. I wish my wife could be here. Uh, she sent her greetings. Her name is Darcy. I met her back in high school, and I was thoroughly smitten by this woman. She was pretty and tall and statuesque and clever and smart. And I, would just, I just fell for her right away. It took me five years to convince her of all the untapped potential I had deeply embedded within me. I said, girl, I'm the mother load of a great time. I'm telling you, work with me, mine it. It's down there. And we finally got married. Uh, and we went on our honeymoon. We got married in the East Coast of US. We went on our honeymoon to Dallas Theological Seminary. That's what we just, we just drove across. But uh, we've been married 42 years this summer. And it's just been fun. <laughs> and we, we, we raised four children to uh, a girl, boy, girl, boy. And they're all married now. So we've entered the Holy of Holies of grandparenting now. We have five grandchildren. As Darcy says, they're God's gift to us for not selling our kids on Craigslist. Uh, <laughs> we thought of it many times. And uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to, to do that. And we're going to talk, when we get back this evening, we're going to talk about that dynamic of parenting and marriage. But I want to I, I spend our time this morning kind of looking at uh, contrasting two ways that we can fall as, as, as people, as we just think through, or think our way through life. And, I want, and, and, and you're going to see as, we, as I paint these pictures out for you how easy it is to fall on one side when our focus is on ourself and on the moment that we're in compared to that opportunity we have that, to, to live a life that is focused on God and and. and and it is put in a much, much larger context of eternity. And that's what we're called to do. If you are a person who have placed your faith in Jesus, I'm not assuming that you are. You might be here just trying to figure this out or you're, you're curious and that's just, you've come to a great place to be curious. Or maybe you've made that step and you've put your faith in him. Jesus went to the cross and through an incredible act of grace and mercy, he offered to all of us something that we did not deserve but we desperately needed. And that was forgiveness for our sins. He took our sins on himself and paid the price so that we could be, he could put his righteousness on us. And the goodness that we have is not about us, it's about him and what he did for us. But a real easy trap to fall into as followers of Jesus is we, we, we limit God's work of grace to salvation. Track with me on this. We tend to limit the work of salvation to uh, to a work of grace of salvation. I was lost, I'm, I'm found. I was blind, now I see. We get that part. And then we go on a performance basis with God after that. We say, oh, wow, he, he, with all he's done for me, boy, I owe him. I need to pay him back. I really need to jump through the hoops. And we go on a performance basis with God. And that's where we lose our way. And once again, that is something that is so foreign uh, to the gospel. Uh, Jesus said, first of all, you know, we, we do this because we think, well, I, I just want to make sure I don't lose his love. You can't lose his love. He's not metering out his love based on how you behave. He says, if I was dealing with you, how you behave, we'd all be dead. None of us would make it. No, I'm dealing with you because of what I did for you. And, 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 and he, he wants to set us free to really shine for him. So 
I want to set a stage for that, of, of how do we face life and, and, and think properly. To do that, let's, let's go back just briefly in time, uh, a, a couple decades, to October 20th, 1968 in Mexico City. The Olympics, the Summer Olympics were going on, and on this particular day, they were running the marathon. Now, the marathon is the oldest event in the Olympics, and uh, the, the runners had taken off, and they kind of know how long these guys are going to take to run this thing, and they had it all time. They'll get to the stadium, they'll give out the medals, and that was kind of the last uh, event of the day, and the people would leave. Well, they took off running, and about halfway through the race, one of the runners fell. His name was John Stephen Aquari from Tanzania. He fell, and he kind of blew out his knee. He was badly injured on his knee, and he whacked his head pretty good, too. And you know how they're in a close configuration when their arms and legs are flying? It's easy to see how someone could get tripped up. Well, anyway, he went down, and the other runners proceeded, and he was just badly injured. Well, at that point, you're done. I mean, you're so badly injured, there's no way you're going to do this. But he got up, and he kind of hobbled, and he jogged some, and then he walked some, and he limped some. He kept going towards the stadium. Well, they had already given out the medals. People were exiting the stadium when the PA system came on and said, you got to stay where you are. We have one, we have one runner left. Uh, a marathoners make his way in. And here comes John Stephen Aquari in the light of this. It was already dark outside. He came in and, 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 he, and people were just horrified. Look, he's all messed up. His leg, and he came hobbling around to the finish line. And he finished the race. Well, they took him off to the hospital to treat his wounds. And the sports writers wanted an interview. They, and they only wanted to ask him one question. It's the question any of us would ask him if, that, if we had there, and that is, why? <laughs> why? After you've hurt yourself so badly, why would you continue on when there's no chance of you winning a medal? And, he, and, and so they, found, they asked him that question. He said, he says, my, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish one to finish one. See, he had a much bigger vision for his life than the moment that he was in. And, and he inspires us. I like the way he thinks. Because see, there's a huge difference between people who do great things and people who live great lives. It's interesting. If you talk about the, the marathon of 1968 Olympics, everybody knows who came in last. His name's John Aquari from Tanzania. Nobody remembers who got the gold medal. It's, it's how we live our lives. And so with that in mind, I, I want to I draw these, con, uh, these contrasts. And by the way, preachers are notorious for categorizing people. We're, it's just, I'm sorry, it's just something we do all the time. And, 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 but I think we tend to categorize people. You know, there's, there's the haves and the have-nots. There's the problem makers, the problem solvers. And you know another category I've seen out there? There's morning people and night people. Have you noticed that? And you know, and God in his divine sense of humor, he loves for morning people to fall in love with night people and get married. <laughs> I'm a night owl. Can't stand to go to bed at night. I married a morning person. So we get married, and, I find, and she's like 9 o'clock. She's saying, I think I'm going to go to bed. I said, why? Why would you want to go to bed? Look, there's still junk on television. There's still traffic outside. And she said, that, she said because morning comes early. What kind of a statement is morning comes early? Morning comes whenever you set the clock for it to come. But sure enough, morning would come early because she'd be up and she'd be perky and she'd get on her stuff to go to the gym and she's singing and she's festive. And you're thinking, what is going on here? I'm in a coma. I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> Proverbs. There's a verse for this. Proverbs 27, 14. It says, he who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning 
it'll be reckoned a curse to him. You see, so there you are. So we have these categories. But, 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 but I, the categories I want to look at today are the categories of, of abundant thinkers versus scarcity thinkers. And to, to, to get a good look at this, let's go to John chapter 6. Familiar territory if you've been around the Bible and, and been a follower of Jesus. If, if not, if you're just, this, this is new to you, you're going to love this story. This is, a, this is a wonderful story. And we'll pick it up in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, let's stop for a second. Let's make sure we understand what Jesus is doing and not doing. First of all, he's not trying to make Philip look foolish. That's not what he's trying to do at all. See, at this point, he is having to teach his disciples a huge lesson because he knows on the time it says the Jewish Passover feast was near. This was the Jewish Passover feast where he was going to go to Jerusalem and end up being crucified just, uh, just on the eve of that. He knew what was coming down. He knew that he was going to die on the cross for our sins to redeem us. He was going to raise from the dead and he was going to ascend into heaven and leave these guys behind in charge of planting the Christian movement in the world. He was going to give them two marching orders, evangelize and disciple and go to the whole world. Now, he also knew that when he gave that order to them, they were not going to have any resources to their name that you would think would be what you'd need to go do that. They didn't have the knowledge other than what they knew from him. They didn't have, you know, seminary scripture. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any uh, real estate. They didn't have none of this stuff. All the things that we would think you would want to have to launch a major movement, they didn't have any of that. And what he wanted them to know, when I ask you to do something huge, that there's no way from a human point of view you can do it, just follow me and obey me and, and do it. Because you and me, we're, we're a majority every time. I will empower you. I will, I will make it happen. So that's what he's trying to teach them. And he's also, by the way, trying to teach us the same thing from this lesson. Because he knew that this lesson was going to be passed on to us. And we, like the disciples, can fall into that scarcity side. So Philip, when he, he threw this out to him, and Philip went human just like, like, like any of us would. And he, said, and he said, eight months' wages would not buy enough for each one to have a bite. He just did the math in his head. He said, come on, Jesus, are you kidding me? There's no way we can do this. Then Andrew speaks up. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. And by the way, every time you meet Andrew in the Bible, he's always doing the same thing. He's always introducing somebody to Jesus. And he introduces this boy to him. He says, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So here's this kid whose mother had the forethought to send him off to see Jesus with a happy meal. You know, he had some food with him in case, he, and, and, and he's like a, probably enough of a, a, a kid that he pushed his way to the front of the whole crowd. He's up close. He's hearing the conversation. Jesus wanting these guys to feed everybody. And for, maybe for, for what, he said, well, for what it's worth, here's this. Take this over to him. He can throw that into the pile. That's maybe one thing that happened. Or maybe Andrew just smelled the food. And he said, you know, and maybe Andrew's getting hungry. That maybe he has more than he needs there. And he'll share. I'm bigger than him. I can take. I don't know what's going on. But he had looked inside. And they didn't have cellophane. So he looked inside the sack. And he knew he had five small barley loaves and, and, the, and small fish. He knew that. 
So he takes him to Jesus. Okay, you know what happened. But, but, but look at him, be, by the way, look at him being scarcity here. But how far will they go among so many? He's thinking very human, very moment, very, and about himself. Both Philip and Anne said, We're, you're wanting us to do this. How are we supposed to do this? You're going to make us, we, we, we can't pull this off. Now watch this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. Isn't that interesting that God throws that into the Bible? What, what's that about? I think he's got, you know, God sent in grass seed there you know, 100 years ahead of time, because he knew on this particular day, this is the only time 5,000 people will be on this field ever, you know, but I want to make sure that when, they, when I feed them, they're comfortable. So God, God is so taking care of them. And, and, and so there were 5,000 people. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and look at this, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Look at the generosity. As much as you want. You have a big appetite? Take more. You got a long trip home? Stuff some in your sack with you. Just take as much as you want. He was generous. He did the same with the fish. Then, 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 then look at verse 12. When, he, he, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Look at, he's a good steward. He's, he's thrifty and he's, he's balanced. See the balance there? It's, it's a thrifty generosity. It was, it's, a, it's a generous stewardship he's doing there. So, so take as much as you want, but let's not be wasteful either. He, he had them both in balance. And so they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Okay, now how many disciples were there? This is not a trick question. 12, right, right. And so they had 12 baskets full of food left over. So what's he saying? Look, when I tell you to do something, I, I call you to do something, and it's so huge, and there's no way you, from a human point of view, can pull this off. Trust me, and just do it. And by the way, I recognize you have to eat too. I recognize you have a family too. I will take care of you in the process. See how we, he was showing them this. Now, he's, he's teaching them something. But like a good teacher, and some of you are teachers, you teach uh, the lesson. Now you've got to put them in a laboratory experience to see if they got the lesson, right? That's what good teachers do. You often, you know, let's create a dilemma based on what I just taught and see if you get it. So, so, the, the, so I'm just going to go off script here and just kind of paraphrase what happened because it's in the Gospels. You can harmonize them together. He said, okay, here's the, here's the thing, guys. I, I, you, it, I'm going to send the people away. I want you guys to head across the lake to Bethsaida. And in, in, the, in, in Mark it says, and I'll meet you there. I'll meet you on the other side of the lake. And so he sends the people on their way, and then he goes up in the mountain to pray, and says he's praying. Now, we don't know what he prayed about, but there's one thing I think is pretty obvious. He was praying for them, because they're having their big test. And he said, let's, let's, let's see if they got this, Lord. Father, drop a tsunami down on them. And he brought this huge storm down on them. And these huge waves were coming over their boat and the winds. And they were so frightened. It was dark. And it was taking them forever to get there. And, and then you read in the scriptures, it says, they collectively came to the conclusion they were going to die. They're, we're going to die. We're going to drown out here. Now, at that point, what did they get at the top of their quiz? Their little pop quiz they just had. What letter did they get? They get an F. They just flunked. Why? Because where did he say he was going to meet them? On the other side. They couldn't drown. It's impossible for them to drown. Even if the boat sunk, they couldn't drown. Because he said he'd meet them on the other side. Well, now he has to go meet them. And it's getting late, and it's a long way. If you know the map, it's a long walk up over the top of the lake. It's not that bad of a run right across the water. So Jesus takes off across the water. 
and he's running, jogging, walking across the water. And he comes by the boat, and that frightens them to death. They see this person, they think it's a ghost or a phantom, and they realize it's Jesus. He's walking on the water. And, and then you know, Peter did his little thing with them, and then finally they invited him in the boat. And when he got in the boat, he gets in the boat, everyone's calm, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's the shore. Yeah, within a matter of minutes, right where he said he'd meet them on the other side. You see, when God calls you or me, and we have dilemmas in our marriages, and we think this is way out of our control, I can't handle this, or we have some prodigal kid, and it's just so, so or we have some medical issue, or somebody close, it's the worst, somebody close to us with a medical issue. For if any of you parents have kids that get real sick, you, I, I know to the parent, you'd say, Lord, give me this disease. Don't give it to them. I'll take this. You know how that kind of, it's so hard. He says, I'm going to get you through this. I will not abandon you. you we, we, we can do this. Or he puts us in a very hostile situation. And he calls us to, to, to be his light in the middle of that. He wants his grace to shine through us. And so I want to compare these two. I want to just walk through and compare these two. But I, I want to qualify something. Now, there are certain personalities that, that God, there are basically four quadrants of personalities. And some people tend to be kind of upbeat and extroverts and visionaries and, and all that stuff. And, 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 and then there's some, they're much more calculated and careful. They might be a little more introverted and less verbal. There's nothing wrong with that. Whichever one you are, that's a gift from God. We need both of those kind. And, 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 and there's, and there's a, a, a positive way to use all this. Jesus, by the way, was a balance of all four of the quadrants of personalities. He did them all. What I'm talking about is not so much whether you are a careful person that you know, becomes a much more like a, a, you know, a planner or you, you do accountant work or you're a good lawyer or something. We need those kind or, or you're a, a, a fun entertainer. I'm, not, I'm just saying that when we are in a situation where God has called us to do something... Do we think about the moment we're in and how this affects us, or do we have our focus on God and how he can use us in that moment? That's all I'm talking about, regardless of your personality type. Okay? So I'm going to paint this one side on one extreme, and I'm going to paint the other one on an extreme idealistic side. This is a pretty un, uh, sad side and an idealistic side. And then as we look at each one of these ways, where do you fall on the continuum. That's what I want to ask you. Think about yourself. Where do I fall on this one? Let's look at, let's, let's run them through a couple of filters. First filter. First filter is, um, how do they view life? How do these two types of thinkers view life? If you have in your bulletin, if you want to take notes on this, there's an outline on this. How do they view life? Well, scarcity thinkers basically approach life with a presupposition that life is a finite pie, that everything is fixed. Everything is limited. They think through a limited mindset, that resources are limited, ideas are limited, opportunities, even love has to be parceled out. It's limited. Now, I'm not talking about, what I'm talking about is when they look at the calling that God has put to them, everything is limited. Now, look at what this would do to a family. If you have this kind of a mindset in a marriage and, 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 and you're constantly keeping score, you're, you're, you're constantly keeping a running tally of who's doing what and is everybody pulling their weight and is this a 50-50 deal, which by the way, if you go into marriage with the mindset that it's a 50-50 deal, you're already dead on arrival. I'm sorry. That is not the way you go into it. 
It is not a 50-50 deal. It's you bring 100%. That's what you're supposed to bring. Whether the, your spouse brings anything, that's what, we're, that's what love's supposed to look like. You bring 100. You don't keep score. But see, when we're thinking about ourselves and we're thinking about the moment, we keep score. And then think of how this would do to a church. If somebody got in the upper levels of church leadership or in staff or whatever, and they have this, this, this scarcity mindset... When God calls us to reach a community that's lost and needs the light of Jesus, and, and well, that costs money, and that takes time, and it takes personnel, and it takes, you know, whatever. It, but if all we're looking at is here and now and me, look at how we can hold back on what God is calling us to do. And so, so God calls us to step up to that. So, so scarcity thinkers on one side, they think everything's limited. Let's look, at, let's look at abundant thinkers. And abundant thinkers, when they call, when God when they know God is leading them and God uh, calls them to something, whether it's in their marriage, or their kids, their grandkids, their work, their whatever, they're focused on him and, and how it impacts the people around them. And so they, they come at it, they believe that there's plenty for everyone. That's the presupposition they're starting with. There's plenty for everyone. There's plenty. In other words, they believe that ideas are unlimited. Opportunities, unlimited. Resources, unlimited. We have a, a man in our church. He's passed away now, but he, a man named John W. Peterson. Some of you older folks, might, that might ring a bell because he was a hymn writer in the 20th century. He wrote a lot of popular Christian songs that are in the, in the hymn book. And it was something that always baffled me as I was growing up. And when, I, when I, I was talking with John one time, and I thought, he would probably, if anyone would know the answers, he would. And I said, John, let, let me, I just want to throw this somebody. There's, there's eight notes in a musical scale, plus their sharps and flats, correct? He said, that's right. I said, okay, now man's been writing original music for what? Six, 7,000 years? And, and those classical writers, they use a lot of those notes in, in, in combination, Right? Shouldn't we be getting close to the end of the melodic options for those eight notes plus their sharps and flats? There's only eight of them. Shouldn't we be getting close to the end? He said, Tim, the mathematic and melodic options of those eight notes plus their sharps and flats are infinite. He said, we could write original music for another billion years. We haven't scratched the surface. God has not printed two sets of prints, fingerprints the same on all the billions of people that have been born. He has not striped two zebras the same. You'll never find two identical zebras. They, they, you know, they have black and white stripes, but the stripes are all different. He has never painted a sunset the same. He is putting sunsets on our horizon since the beginning of time. And if you took a picture, if somebody could have captured a picture on your horizon, you could never find two that are identical. You find some that are similar, but never identical. Now, now, he painted those original sunsets every evening with how many primary colors? How many primary colors are there? Three. But the art, that's what my art teaches. They said there's three primary colors. But help me, if there's two, I'll, I'll stand corrected. The point is, there's not many. <laughs> there's not many, and yet... From those, those basic primary, he, he always comes up with something new. See, we have this incredible God that cannot, to, to confine him, it, when we look at our lives and what he's called us to and think small like that, it, it, it just comes right against the, the, the work that he did in our lives. I love this verse here. Ephesians chapter three, verse 20 and 21. Now to him 
who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Look at that. Imagine. You can't even think. You, let's all collectively try and come up with something that's just off the charts. But we couldn't even come up with it. Now who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to, look at this, his power. That is at work where? Within us. His power in us. Not, I mean, I am limited, and, and no matter how optimistic I might be, there's something I, I can't ever do. But when he wants me to do it, and he's called me to do it, then he can step in. It's a, and then the, the natural next step in this verse, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're gonna, when we close the, today, we're going to be singing a song that has a very famous poem in it. And I just think it captures what I'm talking about here. It says, uh, could we with... Uh, it, it says, could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll of that sky contain the whole of that story. They'll stretch from sky to sky. We have an amazing, wonderful God who through his, his incredible grace stepped into our lives to save us from our sin, to redeem us, and to give us a whole eternal life perspective. And he wants us to live as we take on life and, 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 and view life with that, with that in mind. Let's look at how, how, how these, these uh, people... Let's, let's look at a second uh, dimension on them. How do they view what they have? How do they view what they have? Well, scarcity thinkers have a hard time sharing. And that makes sense. If you think life's the finite pie, then you don't want to share because if you share, then there's less for you. If you think everything's limited, the more you give, then there's less for you. They have a hard time sharing. They hoard. What do they hoard? Well, they hoard, they hoard recognition. They hoard giving credit to people. They hoard ideas. They hoard time and opportunity. They, they hoard power. They hoard profit. They don't, want to give, they don't want to give authority to other people around them. And many times in the marketplace, they don't want to help be kind and, and generous to the people to help them get to where they are in their success. And these are nightmares to work for. By the way, they have a hard time keeping people working for them very long because you, after a while, you see, there's, this is ridiculous. And so, and so they, they, they make it so difficult on, on, on people by, by hoarding. Um, let, me, let me get personal here. Let me meddle a little bit. Because this gets real close to home with us as followers of Jesus. And how we view God and how we view the Christian life and how we view kind of what we have and how we quantify what we have. You know, you know we've been coming, we're, we've been on, an, uh, on several decades in the Christian movement where we basically distilled our relationship with God to how much we know about him. We became very serious students of his Bible. And by the way, I, I think it's great to be a serious student of the Bible and to know the scriptures and to know your theology. We became very serious scriptures uh, uh, students, but, our, but we gauged our relationship with God by how much we knew about him. And we, and, we, and we applauded ourselves by how well we knew uh, know about him compared to somebody else. That's called self-righteousness, by the way. That's not the heart of God. And so, and, 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 and we've, we've, 
you'll see sometimes people in, in their, they're, they're almost serial Bible stu students, serial Bible study attenders. And they go, to, they go to Bible studies all the time. And they have these, their Bibles are, have all these color coordinated. And all, but, but you can't get them to volunteer to work in, with the kids or work with a, whatever. You can't get them to do anything, but they want to come to Bible study. I, I went out to, we were out on New Year's Eve party with some friends. And uh, there was three couples there. And uh, they were all Christians. And I don't know, somebody, somebody came up with this idea. I thought it was a dumb idea, but you know, you got to play along. Somebody said, let's, let's kind of talk about the highlight of our past year. So they, they wanted to do that. And I thought, well, this could be interesting. But anyway, so they wanted to, <laughs> this first guy comes up. He says, you know, my highlight is I come, I come to the church on Sunday morning at Scottsdale and I hear the word. And then I go to a Bible study on Monday morning and I, and I hear this one guy. And these are all celebrity Bible studies. And, and then I go on Tuesday afternoon, I go to this one with this real businessman. It's a great Bible. And then on Thursday, I go to this one. And then on Saturday, I meet some guys and, 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 and I, I go to a Bible study there and they, they teach the Bible. And so I'm listening. Now, no one said we weren't supposed to evaluate what we heard. And I'm listening, I say, you know what my wish for you would be for next year is that you go to a Bible, go to church on Sunday, maybe pick one of those Bible studies out and go to, and then you teach a Bible study. You teach one. Get some guys to get, and you start teaching one. And it was like I spit in everybody's champagne and ruined the evening, and he couldn't believe that I would suggest something like that. And yet, I know that, I mean, I love this man, but he's one of the biggest critics of everything we do in a church. He's always criticizing. And he, he, and he, but he knows the Bible. He studies the Bible. You see, listen, when we come to church, we come to Bible study, we come anywhere. Whether the, whether, regardless of the level of the gift and uh, the communicator in front of you, regardless, we need to come there basically with this attitude, Lord, I need a bath. Oh man, I need a bath. Please wash me of my pride. Wash me of my arrogance and my sin. And, and, and my selfishness, Lord, please wash me, cleanse me today. But see, when we, 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 can, get, we can get on this thing, and we end up, I, I see some, sometimes in the Christian life, especially when we have this scarcity mindset that it's all about us, we, we view this more like a big biblical hot tub. We're just going to sit there, and, and, and we're going to bask in the hot tub, and, 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 but we're going to whine if it's not quite, quite right. Too hot or too cold. And... and and, and I feel sorry for the young guns that are coming along in, in ministry and, 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 and they pour their heart out in ministry and then they get taken on, on some nitpicky thing. By the way, by the way, we're all open to critique. We're all open to critique. And we want to make sure that we handle things right, and, and I do too. And, and, and young guns need to also, well, young guns meaning young, young Bible teachers, men and women, you know, but, but many times they go after you on things that are irrelevant. And it's obvious they didn't hear any, anything that's out there. There's one guy that I remember for years, he would just always, he'd be, make a beeline to me. He's going to take me on at some point of whatever I was teaching and he's got some Greek thing or some Hebrew thing or some whatever and he's going to nitpick on that and I was talking about relationships and I know his, his marriage is a train wreck. I know he, he is so dishonoring to his wife. He doesn't hear a word, but boy, he can argue that. And see, well, that's a scarcity mindset when, and, and, and this, this, this is so foreign to the heart of God. God wants us, God wants us to, to be there and, and, and really be ready to step up and, and learn from him. Let me say something to my generation. I, I'm on the front side of my fourth quarter in life. I'm 64 years old. So I'm starting fourth quarter. And, and I look around here and it looked like 
I have some company, don't I? <laughs> Uh, you, I love seeing such diversity here and, and such age diversity. It's a lot of you young people in middle, in, but there's some of you, you're gray-haired or it, ba- it bailed on you, or, or, uh, or some of you are just using L'Oreal a lot. Uh, but regardless, <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful time in our life. But let me tell you, I accepted Christ when I was 17 years old. And a lot of you older folks accepted Christ when you were young people. Now, here's what I have to say, my message about uh, God's heart and mind when it comes to our fourth quarter. We should be the kindest people in the church. We should be the most gracious people, the most uh, encouraging people in the church. We should be the most magnanimous people in the church. We have had a front row seat to God's glory longer than anybody else. We know he's true. We know he's good. We know he's merciful. We've seen it show up in our life. We should be leading the way on what God's grace looks like lived out. So I just want to say that because many times in churches, it's our generation that's holding the whole thing hostage. Because we want to tailor to who we are and what we want and what it was like when we were here, whatever. And, and by the way, I think when we're all together and we're on our own little groups, we can do it that way. But, but I always want to, I want my life to be used to reach the next generation. That's what I think I should be. I should be always focusing, who's next? And how can God use us to reach them? That's what grace should look like. But I think when we have made our, our focus of attention, how much of the Bible we know rather than how much of the Bible we live how much the Bible has defined us, then we can get there. I've, okay, I've, I've ticked off a lot of people. Let's move on here. <laughs> you know, I'm just, coming, I'm just trying to share my heart here. This is, this is something we all can battle with. We can all struggle here, can't we? Okay, what about abundant thinkers? When it comes to how they, what do they view what they have? They hold everything they have in an open palm. They hold it all in an open palm. Now, I don't mean that they are irresponsible or frivolous with what God has given. But they're basically, as much as possible, whatever I have and whatever I am, whatever it can do to better you and raise your stock value, good. God use me. And so they share. Scarcity thinkers hoard. Abundant thinkers share. And what do they share? They share, they share resources and recognition. They share time. They share ideas. They share opportunities. They share power. And they share profit. Our church that I go to in, in, in Arizona, we, we've had, uh, our, our, ch- our church's theme is come, grow, and go. And so our pastors have been notorious at inviting church planners to come into the area. They meet them and they want to encourage them. And, and these are not necessarily people that, these are not churches that we're necessarily planning. They're just churches that align with who we are and, and, and are trying to advance the ball for the kingdom down the field. And he'll bring, and, and our pastor would come in and introduce these, this couple. Hey, they're planning a church such and such a place. And, and he'd say, to the wife, tell us about your family. She'd tell him about it. Tell, tell us about your vision. So, so, tell us about your vision for this church you're planning. And he'd pour it all out and he'd pray over them. He said, now listen, God's tugging at some of your hearts right now. Some of your, you, you're resonating with what you're hearing now. If that's so, then, then next Sunday morning, I want you to make sure that you're at his church that you're with him. And, and, and he said, now what's the address? Don't write this in your bulletin, you'll lose that. Write it in your Bible. Write this address down. What time we start next? And he'll say, well, we're going to start at night. Okay. Now, if God is tugging at your heart, you make sure you're with him. They need people to help get this church off the ground. If he's, they've been doing that for years. And, 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 and the scarcity people in, in leadership, they just freak out when they do that. Because you know what? Invariably, 10... 12, 15 families who leave our church and go join with them. And they freak out. And 25 families come in and take their place. 
That's how God works. We've never had a problem in that. When you, when you share, when, you, when you're, you're out there, laying it all out there for the good of the others. I, I love the way Jim Elliott, you know, Jim Elliott was a missionary. He and his friends went down to try and reach the Alca Indians up in the Amazon River in Ecuador. And, and because it's their first time, these, these, these people had, had outsiders. They were frightened. And there's a lot of reasons why. Anyway, they slaughtered these missionaries. And, and they found their bodies. And then ultimately their wives came in and, and brought the gospel and established a church in that, in that village. But they found Jim's diary near his body. And, and you know the famous line from that that he said. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. God has given us so much through the gospel. Let's just give it away. And we just don't just give it away through giving the gospel. Give it away through putting flesh and blood around the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God with those kids that are pushing every button, with those neighbors that are well, wrapped up in sin, with the people at work. And we care. Okay, how do they view others? Third dimension, how do they view others? Scarcity thinkers have a difficult time being genuinely happy for the successes of other people. Even, and especially, members of their own family, close friends, or associates. Let me say that again. Scarcity thinkers have a difficult time being genuinely happy for the successes of other people. Even, and especially, members of their own family, close friends, and associates. Because they treat other people's blessing as though something were taken from them. Because if you believe, if you start with life's a finite pie, then if you get more, then there's less for me. That's, the, that's how that mindset works. And by the way, if you are in a family where there's several siblings, there's usually one that's going to probably do better than the others financially. That's just the way it is. But, but this can cause bickering and, and, and rancor and jealousy. If, 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 if all we're focused on is this moment and me, rather than God and others. The way grace is supposed to have us configured. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a, there's a guy. Let's put, let's put this guy. He's living in a neighborhood that's lower middle class, meaning they pay their bills in time. They don't miss meals. But other than that, they don't have a lot of margin extra. He comes out of his garage and his neighbor is out in front of his house. Look, and, he's in, and his neighbor's looking at a brand new Jaguar. Got a brand new Jaguar. And so the scarcity thinker says, wow, must have got a raise or something at work. He says, no, no, get this. My grandmother, she's got some money, and she's getting late in life, and she, she decided to bless us all. And she asked all of us grandkids what kind of car we like, and, and I told her I like a Jaguar. She bought, me the cha- she bought us all a car, and not only that, she paid all the tags on it, taxes on it, and she's going to pay the repairs on it up to 60,000 miles. Your grandmother gave you the car? Yeah. You want to come over and look at it? No. No, come on over. You know, I'm going to show you my... No, no, I'm busy. I've got a lot of things on my mind. I've got I, a checklist. I've got to color coordinate my sock drawer. And I've got to, you know, uh, I'm busy. He goes into his wife. You won't believe it. He got a new car, a new Jaguar. His grandmother gave it to him. Paid for everything. And then, and then they... So he doesn't like... And then they pass each other, going to come from work. And the neighbors waving to the skid. Hey, man, how you doing? And, Ooh, I hate that car. I hate that car. By the way, there's a very thin line between hating the car and hating the driver. I hate that car. By the way, is this pathetic? Yes. Can we fall in that easily? Yes. When we swallow that poison pill of comparison, that's what happens. When it's all about us, instead of letting the work of Christ on the cross be all about his glory and and blessing other people. 
And so, so down things go. Here's what's sad. What is sad is that the scarcity thinkers miss out on the shared blessing because they refuse to share the joy. If they can't be blessed, they don't want anyone else to be blessed either. Now let's, you know, on top of that, they see others as objects rather than fellow human beings. And in the process, they sully the gospel. Look at this verse here, Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Well, what about abundant thinkers? How do they view others? Abundant thinkers love it when good things happen to the people they, they, to the people they love. They love it. In fact, they love it when good things happen to anybody. They love it. They can't seem to uh, applaud other people's accomplishments and blessings enough. Let's go back to, let's say this is abundant thinker who comes out of the house. Here's his neighbor in the Jaguar. What, you get a raise or something? No, no, my grandmother. She's, you know, given, she bought a car for me and, and she's paying the taxes and, and repair. You're kidding me. That's incredible. You want to see it? Yeah, but so, uh, let me go get my camera first. And my wife, I'm, well, I'm going to get a picture. We're going to put this on Facebook. I'm posting about my neighbor's got a new Jag. His grandmother gave to him. He says, you want to drive it? You'll let me drive? Awesome. And and then they pass each other, go and come from work. And the neighbor says, hey, man. And I'm by the thing. I love that car. Love your car. He comes home. Let's, let's say, let's say uh, the, the, if the scarcity thinker sees, he comes home and, and, and the scarcity thinker sees him looking at the side of the, the door and, and he says, someone nicked my car. The scarcity thinker's going, yes, good. Looks more like my piece of junk every day. The abundant thinker, he sees, hey, what's wrong? Somebody nicked my car. I said, wait a minute, I have some compound. We can, we can rub that out. I think we can make that look good. See, what's the difference here? When, you, when you're an abundant thinker, it's like the grandmother gave the abundant thinker the car. He's so excited for the, uh, the goodness of other people. It's like he gets blessed. And that's what it's like when we live looking outwards towards others and let God's love and mercy and grace be coming through, even with people that struggle and are, are tough. Well, Philippians chapter two gives us good advice here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, look at that, that humility is taking, taking our focus off ourselves. Value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. One more comparison. How do they view adversity? How do they view adversity? Scarcity thinkers take adversity personally. And they punish the people up close to them when they have to go through it. What does that look like? They complain, they whine, they nag. Someone has said nagging is like being nibbled to death by a duck. He said, will you just grow teeth and finish me off? I'm sick of this stuff, you're driving me crazy. Listen to this, they don't dream and they don't give people around them, close to them, permission to dream. Can you imagine what this would be to children or grandchildren if we had this mindset and we're always trying to throw a wet blanket over their the dreams and, and, and goals? It, it makes us cynical people. And you know, a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And we gotta get beyond that. What about abundant thinkers? Well, abundant thinkers, when it comes to adversity, they feel the pain and the frustration of adversity, but they never use it as an excuse to do everything they can to move beyond it. They feel it, but they move beyond it. They fall forward. Now, that's a football term. And so, de deal with me, ladies, on this one. Men will appreciate this. You know, when I played football in, in, in school, and 
our coach had this little lecture at the beginning of the, each season. It was the same one. He'd hold up a, a ball and he said, no, look, guys, this is not a complicated game we're playing. Here's the object of the game. We're going to hand you the ball. You fall forward. Fall forward. He says, the key word here is fall. They're going to get you. They're going to hit you hard. They're going to rip your head off. Just make sure you're a few yards further down the field when they do that to you than where we hand you the ball. And eventually somebody falls across the end zone. We get some numbers up on the sign. That's how we win this game. Fall forward. I would play, and every once in a while I get my bell rung real good. And, and you know, maybe the wind's knocked down, and I'm getting up slowly and, and all. And he would yell out, Kimmel, are you hurt or are you injured? I hated that question. <laughs> I hated it. Because I was never injured. I mean, if you're injured, you gotta get off the field. You won't work. You know, I'd say, Coach, I'm hurt. And what would he say? Get up. Everybody out here is hurt. It's a contact sport. That's how you play it. You got to play hurt. And you know, it's easier to play hurt when you're playing for the coach and not for the crowd. When you're playing your life for Jesus Christ. And so abundant thinkers don't let their failures or disappointments define them. I think a great example of this would be Joseph in the Old Testament. Here's Joseph. He's got this father with issues, you know, the weird father that picks him out of the 12 to be his favorite. And then he's got these brothers that are jealous. And then he, God gives him dreams, and the dreams really make the, the, the lines between the jealousy even more. And then, and then his father, the worst thing, his father gave him that stupid Michael Jackson outfit. And he has to wear the sequin glove and all that stuff and, and to set him apart. And, and so this ticks the brothers off. And then finally he sends them out to check on his brothers and says, and they saw him afar off, and they knew it was Joseph. They didn't have binoculars back then, so how did they know it was Joseph? the glove and he's he's moonwalking across the thing and they're saying there comes that dreamer and, oh man i hate him yeah we all hate him one of the guys said hey let's kill him we can't kill him he's our brother let's sell him okay and so they sold him to these traders going to egypt and he gets down to egypt he's bought by this guy named potiphar who has this lonely unfulfilled wife she likes what she sees and she comes on strong to him and he says, are you, you know, sexually, and he says, no, 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 get away from me. And he, and he spurns her, but she keeps coming on to him, and he, he keeps rejecting her. Finally, she's so mad that she accuses, falsely accuses him of sexual assault, and he's thrown in prison. Okay, now, I don't know about you, but if that were me, I would check in from the, from the Egyptian prison with my final prayer to God, and it would go something like this. Thanks a lot. Thanks a whole lot. I didn't ask for my father with all those issues. I didn't ask for that stupid outfit. I didn't ask for those dreams. I know you gave me those. I didn't ask for those jealous brothers. I certainly didn't ask for this, this crazy woman. I've done everything I, you, you, you told me I'm supposed to do, and I get thrown in prison. Thanks a lot. But that's not how he prayed, is it? He prayed something like, okay, Lord, let me see if I get this straight. You're moving my ministry from Potiphar's house to the jail. And he became the most responsible prisoner they ever had he just about ended up running the place and and ultimately he became the prime minister of Egypt and 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 he was put in a position to save his own family from starvation and the nation of Israel from idolatry see you, you can't lose when you let Jesus own your heart and overwhelm you James 1 2 and 4 2 to 4 consider pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds <coughs> Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. God wants to use these things 
in our life to make us better people and draw us closer to him and bring glory and honor to him. Look, maybe you've been, been bankrupt or you got fired or you've been through a divorce or you had to get married or you had an abortion or you, 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 you've done some crime. There's a whole lot of things that you're, 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 you have regrets, you have broken dreams. Don't let these define you. Christ went to the cross to set us free from these. See, scarcity thinking is extremely harmful to, to ourselves and to others. It steals from people, it discourages, it handicaps, it wearies. And it allows fear to own the controlling interest in our ongoing thinking. Christ died to drive us above that. So I've got to land the plane here. And uh, I just want to mention that this evening, we're going to get back together at 6 o'clock. I hope you can come. Trust me, you will love it. You'll have a great time. I promise you, your stock value, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally, as a, as, a, as a couple, as a married couple, or as a parent, is going to go up, or a grandparent. And if you're not married and you're thinking about it, just come on out, because we're going to talk about grace-filled marriage this evening, and we're going to talk about grace-based parenting, and what grace looks like played out in the relationship, the close relationships of a marriage. What, what's grace look like in conflict? What are, how, how do we bring the best out of our spouse? What's grace-filled sex look like? And then we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about four wonderful freedoms you can give your kid that automatically incline them more to the role you're playing in their life. And so I hope you come back out. We'll have a lot of fun in that. I got to close. Here's this closing little thing. There were two boys. One was always optimistic and one was always pessimistic and they couldn't figure out why. So they took the pessimistic kid and they put him in a room, had things that most little boys would really enjoy. There was, there was a jumping horse. There was some puzzles. There was some candy. He sat down there and said, we'll come, come back and check on you. And they took the optimistic kid and they took him down and they opened up a door and they threw him in a room that was knee, knee deep in horse manure and said, we'll come and check on you in a while. They closed the door. They waited. They waited. They waited. Came back and opened the door and the pessimistic kid, he was sitting right where they had left him, hadn't touched a thing. Hey man, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you play with a puzzle? Look too complicated. Why didn't you play in a jumping horse? I thought I'd fall off and hurt myself. Why didn't you eat the candy? Every kid loves candy. I thought I'd get sick and hurl all over the place. They left and they came down, opened the door on the optimistic kid. There's manure all over the place, all over the ceiling, all over the walls. He's throwing a big chunk of it. What are you doing with all this stuff in here? There's got to be a pony in here somewhere. And I'm going to find him. I'm going to find Listen, so much of it has attitude. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for these people. Thank you for each one of them. Lord, you know their backstories. You know all of our backstories. You know the things about us we don't want anyone else to know. And yet, in spite of it all, you love us. Your mercy is unending. Your grace wants to define us. And we just pray, dear Lord, that you will indeed uh, overwhelm us with your power and presence. If someone's here, Lord, that doesn't know you, oh, Lord, I pray that they will take the steps to talk to somebody here, somebody, one of the ministers or something, to, to find out what does it mean to know Jesus that way, to have that grace. Thank you, Lord, for all these people. Bless them, Lord, and help us be emissaries of your grace as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.